Speaking of hot action, oh, I God. found uh, I was cleaning out my basement, and I found a box from like from like ten years ago, uh, and it has my first sex tape in it. Your first one? <laughs> Wait, hold on. There's there's stuff to unpack. You can't just say first sex tape and then uh, okay. So first, for the, so sex tape. That's it was it was back before, it was back before I was. I would even dare record a sex tape on my phone. It was, it was a, it's on like a, it's on one of those, those cassettes that go in the cameras. Okay. Ah, oh, God. If, you know, I, 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 I don't even have something to play it, but you know, I just thought about it. it. Brought back a lot of memories. It's like, oh, we don't have Betamax anymore for me to watch <laughs> myself get it on. There's so many, so many more lines of resolution so you can see my naked body getting it on better. Man, Betamax, that sure is that sure is a a, a a something plucked right from the history books, huh, Mike? That's how we that's that's a historical artifact right there that you found your Betamax sex tape. Hey, hey historical artifacts. What? <laughs> okay, we can't actually segue because we have to actually explain what the fuck we're talking about. All right. Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, <laughs> former fans of the Songtopsy Report, um, where we normally and, and dissect... And new dirty listeners. Exactly. Where we normally dissect bad, bizarre, otherwise noteworthy music, figure out how it died. <laughs> We're putting a bit of a pause on that this week, because as you might have noticed, for the first time ever, it's just Steve and Mike. This is insanity. It's where where our, is Nick? <laughs> our minds are blown. Nick has some. Nick had some very important business to take care of. He wasn't available to record, which is fine. I guess he can miss one out of yeah. one hundred and forty-five <laughs> episodes if he needs to. Ah, uh, you know the nerve of that guy. <laughs> We're we're here to make Nick's life a living hell by just going off on tangents. There's no one to control us. We can just, go off on tangents and. And uh, and talk for excessive amounts of time and have a bunch of silence and weird noises for him to edit out. It's going to be great. Who's going to keep this train on the rails? That's nobody. This crazy train. Nobody. Um, so in Nick's absence, I asked Mike if he would be interested in uh, doing a little experimental episode. So if in and case Steve that, in case, knows, I love experiment. He does love to experiment. <laughs> yes, and uh, our eagle-eared listeners. Eagles have terrible uh, have terrible hearing, so that doesn't work. But uh, turkey-eared listeners uh, of the are, show... Are turkeys good? Are, do they listen better? I'm going to say yes. Um, I'm going to say a lot of things that I may or may not know today. Um, Flamingo-eared listeners. Exactly. They, they might remember that many, many episodes ago, I jokingly suggested um, to Mike and Nick that, uh, that uh, it would be fun, due to my predilection to just spouting off on unrelated historical facts just to make myself seem smarter uh that we would just center a whole episode around that instead of ruining uh the actual show uh the oeuvre of the show by doing it in the middle so that's what we're gonna do today on uh in case and it's experimental it's not gonna be a regular thing in case everyone hates this don't worry we're gonna come back next week stronger and better than ever with an actual song topsy uh favorite episode Hey, no, there's nothing wrong with a good old-fashioned B-side, Steve. So in that spirit, uh, 
there was a joke that I made uh, to to Mike that uh, we would call the episode because I'm mean to him. Uh, we would call the show "It's History Stupid." We might gonna, amend it oh, to <laughs> "It's Stupid History" because it is kind of the, the things we're going to talk about today are a little bit silly. But uh, but I was mean. Um, but I neglected to come up with a better title, so we're going to go with that. Just for like right now. you neglected my my <laughs> emotional well being by calling me stupid in the title. Exactly. <laughs> it's a little bit like I kind of wanted to be like. Did you ever watch those old um, uh, uh, Mr. Peabody cartoons? With, uh, uh, Mr. Peabody with and the smart ass dogs making the kid feel like a dumbass all the whole episode. Yeah, quiet you. Yeah, like that. <laughs> That's kind of the vibe we we're going for. So today we are going to dissect. Bad, bizarre, or otherwise noteworthy historical events. Um, not to figure out how they died, because they happened. But uh, just to just to give our listeners a little bit of a greater grasp of the larger world around them and the events that preceded them. Get ready to learn something, folks. That's what I'm ready to do. Yeah, Mike's ready. To, <laughs> Mike is ready to learn. And don't worry if uh, if you if you don't understand what Steve's saying because he goes off with his highbrow, uh, crazy language. Ah, uh, I'll, I'll make him explain it so we can all understand what the fuck Good. he's talking about. Exactly. Uh, and again, it, this will uh, th- this is us trying something out. So we'll see what happens. So uh, thank you for coming along for the ride. I'm uh, Professor Stephen Trollinger. I'm your student, Mike Russell. And let's get let's get started. In uh, in deference to Nick, I've attempted to make at least somewhat of an effort to center this in a in some sort of musical milieu. So we're going to talk about three different historical events today, and each one is going to have a it's going to have a fun music themed title. So for our first Ooh, our first uh, yes our first uh, foray into history uh, is a little segment I'm calling the semi charmed life of Robert Todd Lincoln. Yo, I love that song. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was tempted to actually use bits of it like that to intro the intro this the the segment, but I don't know. We normally listen to songs to make fun of them and not just use them in general, so I was a little worried about how much of it I could use. So uh I'm going to I'm gonna find some like fun little stinger music to throw in there for each segment. Um so uh, Mike, do you know anything about Robert Todd Lincoln? Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, well, I'm gonna guess he's not related to our boy Abraham, so... Act, uh, you're already <laughs> wrong! You're already so incredibly wrong! <laughs> who is this, who is this mysterious Lincoln? Robert, does he, does he like the car? Does he drive that car around a lot? Is that, may, uh, <laughs> maybe. He did live long enough to see, uh, the first Lincolns, but, um, Robert Todd Lincoln was the first and eventually only surviving child of... Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln, our illustrious 16th president of the United States. Do you know who he is, Mike? Oh, the the, the man with the Emancipation Proclamation, or in the bedroom, his ejaculation proclamation, right? Wow, I couldn't have put it worse myself. That, you you disgusting boob, you... You can already see where we're how how this is gonna how this is gonna I'm go. I'm gonna folks. really try to clean up my act here. Yeah. I, I already passed sex ed. Let's let's move on. This and is you music filmed history. it and you filmed it <laughs> a number of times. Given the word the choice word of first, I didn't want to forget what I learned. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to the tapes. So, uh, as with all sons of famous fathers, Robert Todd Lincoln would live a life in the shadow of his parent. 
he would constantly be judged against the greatness of the greatest U.S. president in our illustrious country's history. By that measure, even the most extraordinary of lives would pale in comparison. So, for instance, Mike, compared to you or me, his life was fairly remarkable. He served uh, uh, General U.S. Grant during the Civil War, went mm-hmm. to Harvard. He was the Secretary of Defense, or at that time it was called Secretary of War. He was the ambassador to the United Kingdom. He became the president of a successful company. Uh, but, but not of the good old yeah. U.S. of A. But he did free <laughs> millions of people, so fuck that kid. <laughs> he wasn't. He never got to be on a coin, you know? I don't... This poor kid. Like, imagine how that fucks you up. He was actually present at the unveiling of the Lincoln Memorial. Like, he was still alive, and he was like in this. He was he was a very old man at the time. He was still alive during the, during the giant twenty foot statue of his dad gets gets revealed, and he's like, "Oh well, my life is worthless." <laughs> Dad's normal shoes were already too big to fill. Now I gotta fill this guy's shoes. Exactly. Like- like what's what size is that statue shoes? That's got to be like a hundred and like twenty eight. It's um, I I would have to. I don't have those. Pay, I don't have those that info in front of me, Mike. I'd have to look that up. I tried to. I tried to have a list of all the possible questions you could ask me, and that was surprisingly <laughs> not one of them. But so, so he was Robbie basically Todd. yeah, Robbie Todd, as he loved to be called. <laughs> also had uh, he also had a uh, uh, the bad news uh, the bad luck of being fairly stuffy and aloof so his dad was very was well known for having a sense of humor being very folksy but also well spoken uh this guy was uh grew up a bit bit of a stuffed shirt with his uh, hoity-toity parties and his rich man lifestyle like he uh he was definitely like he's what he was a Republican because his dad was the first Republican president. So, but he was definitely the kind of Republican we think of when we think of Republicans these days. So, 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 so Abraham Abraham Lincoln was was a Republican that uh, that that everyone everyone truly would admire. Then, yes, right? he was the first Republican president. Um, and uh, I won't get into this. This isn't the story. This story we're going to talk about. But yeah, eventually there was a there was a definite shift um, right around the time in 1965 when the Civil Rights Act passed. For some reason, a bunch of Democrats in the South decided they'd rather be Republicans now. Um, after Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat, signed that, I don't know what their thinking was. I don't know what drove them to do that, but. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Robbie Todd, as, Robbie as Todd. Mike pointed out. <laughs> there is one thing that Robert Todd Lincoln was particularly good at, comparatively speaking, and that is presidential assassinations. Wait. Wait. Well, hold on. Hold on. Wait, Let me explain. What? Let me explain. Not that he committed any. Not that he committed any. But he was, coincidentally, either present or nearby at no less than three separate presidential assassinations throughout his life. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me? Oh, no, damn it. That's what we should have called the show. Go back. It's called Are You Telling Me? That's the title of the show. I... Nick, when you when you write this out, it's Are You Telling Me? I can't believe we forgot that. Thank you, Mike. Are you, are you telling me this guy was around for his dad's assassination and two other presidential assassinations? That's exactly what I'm telling you, Mike. What oh, the? So a little I, bit of... I, I, 
I'm calling. Is, how is it? How is there not a Robbie Todd conspiracy theory out there? I uh, there. Well, at the time, nobody. There wasn't anything. There, there wasn't anything that could be considered a conspiracy theory, in the sense that like conspiracy theories are usually made up. There's conspiracies, and then there's theory. At the time, there is usually just the conspiracy, like the conspiracy to kill his dad. But there wasn't a. There wasn't like a. The newspapers weren't like printing weird shit about, uh, like, uh, you know, like Robert Todd Lincoln, despite being nowhere nearby, or was he, killed his dad somehow. Like, you know, like we would today. All right, so a little bit of background. I can't just, like, throw a grenade like that. And yeah, that was, a, was a pretty large grenade. Let's... Um, so you pointed, as you pointed out, as you pointed out, Mike, uh, obviously the first one is his dad's assassination. He was not there. He was not in the booth at Ford's Theater. But he was at the White House nearby, uh, and after his father was shot, he was rushed uh, to his side, and he stood at his uh, deathbed um, for the rest of the night and attended him as he, as he passed away. Now, this would be considerably traumatic for most people. At this time, he, was, uh, he wasn't a kid. He was a young adult. He was in college, so it wasn't like, as scarring as it possibly could be. Wait, I don't know Still about pretty you. bad. Steve, Steve, I've, grown men have some of the worst daddy issues out there. I mean, oh no, I didn't say he was not going to have any daddy issues going <laughs> forward. No, far, far and above that. Uh, another little fun Cause, side note: because now, yes, what's sorry. he going to do? Now his dad died in a really cool way. I'm mean, not cool way. I'm sorry, in a really big way. And now, <laughs> dad, and now anyway, he died, died in a really this, cool way. <laughs> it was a surfing accident. So. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, he, he was surfing. He was surfing out of Maui, and then he got a 30-foot wave crushed him. He got bitten by a shark. He bled out in the sea. And that shark's name? John, John Wilkes, Wilkes Tooth. Tooth. Oh, <laughs> yes. Good, Mike. Excellent. John Wilkes Tooth, indeed. <laughs> so, uh, continuing along with the theme of the semi-charm life, uh, did you know, Mike, I'm telling you. Are you? Yeah, um, you tell me. <laughs> Robert Todd Lincoln was once saved from death. By Edwin Booth, brother of John Wilkes Booth. Get the flip out of here. So, John Wilkes Booth was actually, if you may may or may not know, John Wilkes Wilkes Booth was a member of a very prominent and famous uh, theatrical family. They were, they came from a long line of like English American uh, actors. And at the time, Edwin Booth and John Wilkes Booth and their uh, younger brother, who wasn't quite as famous, were some of the most famous. Booth. Yeah. Oh, We're God. some of the most famous and recognizable actors in the uh, in the country, uh, known for performing Shakespearean plays. In fact, Edwin Booth um, held the record for most performances as Hamlet until 1922, I think. What? What the Booths? You know, it's funny. When I, when I knew John Wilkes Booth was an actor, but I didn't realize the Booths were so big in the biz. They were like, like the they were like the Barrymores or the Hepburns. I, I said that when I make my wife angry. Um, on a train platform in Jersey City, Mike. Hey, my uh, place. <laughs> yeah, uh, off, on a train platform in New Jersey City, uh, believed to have taken place in late 1863. Uh, Robert Todd Lincoln recalled uh, the incident in a 1909 letter where he writes, The incident occurred while a group of passengers were late at night purchasing their sleeping car places from the conductor. 
who stood on the station platform at the entrance of the car. The platform was about the height of the car floor, and there was, of course, a narrow space between the platform and the car body. There was some crowding, and I happened to be pressed by it against the car body Ooh, while waiting my turn. No, you don't want to be there. In this situation, the train began to move, and by the motion, I was twisted off my feet, and it dropped somewhat with feet downward into the open space, and was personally helpless when my coat collar was vigorously seized and I was quickly pulled up and out to a secure footing on the platform. Upon turning to thank my rescuer, I saw it was Edwin Booth, whose face was, of course, well known to me, and I expressed my gratitude to him, and in doing so, called him by name. And Edwin Booth, actually, uh, years later, following his brother's assassination of President Lincoln, uh, actually got a letter from Ulysses Grant, who at the time was president, uh, sent Edwin Booth a letter thanking him for saving Robert Todd Lincoln. Wow. So in terms of like black sheep and white sheep of the family, uh, you can think of no greater American example than the Booth family when it comes to uh, one liked the president's family <laughs> enough to not have them die, and the other one and the union enough, and the other one disliked the union enough to actively have the president die. That is insanity. And, like, how do you feel as Robbie Todd? Like, the brother of my father's assassin has saved me. Now, part well, of he, would, probably... he would know that at the time. He would only realize that after the, because this took place oh, a couple right years before, before oh, the assassination. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, he must, ooh. Ooh, man. Steve, I just don't feel right about this. It's just what? like, like I'm put, I'm trying to put myself in, in old, in old Robbie Todd shoes. I'm imagining us calling him that is the equivalent of when Homer Simpson called Frank Grimes grimy the whole time. <laughs> when I think of Robert Todd Lincoln, I think of Frank Grimes from The Simpsons. Because you, you got to think, you can't help but at least think about having a vendetta against the entire Booth family after someone kills a family member. Yeah, but remember, they were like the most famous actors in the country at the time. Like, if you had... How mad would you be at, like, Scarlett Johansson if you find out found out that her brother, like, shot your senator or something like that? Would you be shot mad at Scarlett Johansson? Shot my dad, Steve! Shot my dad. Shot your dad. All right. If Scarlett Johansson's brother shot your dad, would you be upset with ScarJo? No, I wouldn't be upset with ScarJo. Exactly. So the, why well, would that, Robbie that's Todd? Because ScarJo's a lady, and honestly, it would make her brother more mad if I just hooked up with her and married her instead. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's totally within your decision to make too. Hey, <laughs> you, you never know. I don't. Scar You're absolutely right. Might, might be might be digging the Mike Russ. We don't know. I'll, uh, we'll find you, out one day. Hopefully, her brother tries to shoot your dad. I guess at some point. Um. Anyway, Mike, that's only one presidential assassination. So, 19 years later, at President James Garfield's invitation, Robert Todd Lincoln was invited to Washington. He D. hates C. Mondays, doesn't he? I know he, he does, does hate Mondays. <laughs> On July 2nd. At the 6th Street train station, Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. Lincoln was present when James Garfield was shot and killed by the assassin Charles Guiteau. Uh, 
Lincoln was serving as Garfield's Secretary of War. That's when he was Secretary of War. So he was an eyewitness at this moment to a second presidential assassination. So the first time, personal personal feels. He's like, oh, that's my dad. And it happened right next door while I was at the White House. And this time, he's there in person. He's the Secretary of War for this man, who's now perhaps like a second father to him. I don't, I don't know. know. James, James Garfield. I don't know much about James Garfield, <laughs> but based on his picture, he doesn't seem like the warmest of individuals. Hold on. I want to see a but photo. He was, he was his president. I will say this. He was serving as his secretary of war. So he was serving as his, you know, his trusted advisor. So he does. Oh, have he that. had a hell of a beard, didn't he? <laughs> they all had a hell of a beard. <laughs> I don't think I could ever. I can't grow a beard, Steve. Does that mean I can't I can't be a, a leading Don't time figure? travel. Don't, don't <laughs> travel back to any time in the like 19th century then. Unless you can grow a wicked awesome mustache and mutton chops, that's the only thing that could save you. So so he witnesses this firsthand. Yeah. And uh what does he do? I mean, it's not it's not an action movie, Mike. He didn't he didn't like he didn't have like a Vietnam War flashback trick. He didn't have a Rambo moment in his head where it's like, I remember when they did this to my dad, and then he like runs down the assassin. Like if you, he, he's not, he's not you. He's not. He doesn't. <laughs> he wouldn't do what you would oh, do, Mike. Oh, Steve. the fact you, ah, uh, I appreciate that, Steve. The president's been mur- the president's been assassinated. <laughs> Where'd Mike go? Boom! <laughs> <laughs> Slow motion. Booth. It wasn't Booth didn't kill Garfield. Oh yeah, or uh, Guten Tag. Some, what was Booth, his name? <laughs> Guten Tag. Yes, Charles Guten Tag. <laughs> All right, but twenty years later, in 1901, at President William McKinley's invitation, McKinley. Robert Todd Lincoln was at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, where on September uh, September sixth, uh, William McKinley was assassinated by a uh, an American uh, Polish anarchist by the name of Leon, whose last name I didn't remember to figure out how to pronounce. Leon, now my wife is very upset at me because uh, he 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 has he has a scene in the uh, this the uh, famous uh, Stephen Sondheim musical Assassins, and and now I'm going to get judgmental stares from my wife about it. We call to the stand, Leon. What's his fuck? Um, but Robbie Todd was not, and they got me fucking doing it. Robbie Todd was not an eyewitness to that event, but he was outside the building. So this you is. You know, so, I don't know how I feel about this Robbie Todd right now. He sounds like bad luck. Like if well, I was president, I'd be like, you know what? Don't invite, don't invite that Lincoln kid here. Fu- all right, it's funny just got that bad you juju all over him. It's funny that you should say that because three uh, after this third one. Uh, Lincoln is said to have refused every presidential invitation afterwards with the comment, no, I'm not going, and they'd better not ask me because there's a certain fatality about presidential functions whenever I am present. <laughs> Poor um, Robbie Todd. Like, I don't know. He was kind of a jerk, so what was not to say he deserved it. I'm just saying. <laughs> He was the Secretary of War, or is that why he was a jerk? You think he was... No, he was just, like I said, he was a stuffed shirt. He wasn't his... And that was his problem. He wasn't his dad. And everyone (laughs) saw him not as Robert Todd Lincoln, the man. They saw him as the greatest president to have ever lived son. 
And that's a hard that's a hard nut for anyone to crack. Oh my god. And then imagine how he felt when he found out his dad was a vampire hunter. I Jeez. know, right? <laughs> but luckily that was kept secret until long after his death. Ugh. But that's so that's the semi-charm life of Robert Todd. <laughs> Robbie Todd Lincoln. Uh, Robbie Todd. Well, that sounded like a miserable existence for him. I don't know. Like I said, yeah, compared yeah, sure. to the rest he, of us, he lived a pretty sweet life. But unfortunately, he was he was the great emancipator's yeah. son. So. Are you kidding? He ended he ended his days being like, I'm not going to any more parties. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's I mean, no I one wants him. me around. <laughs> no one wants me around because people keep dying for some reason. No presidents want, and that's that's his privilege that he could say, no presidents want me around anymore. <laughs> but now we're moving on to our second vignette. Um, and I'm calling this one "Moving Out," New York City song, which is you Movin know the the Billy, Billy Joel, Joel song. Yeah, the Billy yeah. Joel. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how's that? How's that? How's that chorus go? It's like um, at the New Works in the grocery store, saving <laughs> his pennies for someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just saying the whole song. And That's how we started. Moving out. <laughs> I'm moving out, but not Anthony. Though there were probably quite a few Anthony's um, and Tony's, uh, we're going to be discussing not Anthony's song, but New York City's song. Mike, let me ask you a question. Sure thing. What has been your experiences like when you've had to move, when you've had to change apartments? Oh, for me? Well, yeah. the last time I moved, Steve, I threw out 90% of my belongings and really pissed off my mom mate. Because <laughs> I left your my couch. <laughs> yes, your roommate, who was Who was uh, old enough to be my mom. Okay. Hey, you know what? Great lady, though. Let me tell you. She, well, we're okay now. I, okay, we, we ha- that's good. It was a bad falling out, but then, you know, when the whole COVID happened, we, we checked in. And, you know, uh, she's that's... not doing well. But Oh, okay. She, well, we don't need to get to into live, that. She had to live with a, with a grandma clown. <laughs> okay, well, I feel I'm like this is... I'm not even kidding. He's a famous clown. <laughs> I feel like this is a different... This is a different show now. Oh, that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This, no. is a third, this is a third new show we have to... So moving, Steve. Moving. Yes, moving's, your... moving's a real no. pain in the ass. I don't think, yeah, I don't know anybody who lives in New York who has a good, oh, man, you know what a great day was? That day I moved. Like, nobody has that story. Which I, I, I wouldn't think so. One time I helped Nick move. Yeah? It was like 90 degrees out. Oh, yeah? dude, sweating, sweating my balls off, man. It was crazy. But you know what? He was he was thankful, and then Nick helped me move, and that's when I destroyed all my shit out in the sidewalk, and he didn't like that very much. No, I okay. think I remember seeing pictures of that. <laughs> you were trying to like elbow drop a desk to try to break it in two or something. No, that's how we do things upstate. We break our furniture and set them on fire in bonfires. But you well, know, Nick wanted no part of that. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's 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 believe it or not, Mike. That's part of a rich historical tradition that you were a part of. Have you ever heard of Moving Day, the holiday? The holiday? I've heard moving of Boxing Day, day the holiday, okay. but Moving Day? No, it's completely different. <laughs> so Moving Day in New York City began as a tradition dating back to colonial times. Um, what would happen is the landlords of the city, united in their greed, would on February 1st post the new yearly rents for the following end of the quarter. And throughout the spring... Tenants would uh, determine whether or not they could pay that new amount, uh, and if they couldn't, would madly search the city for new housing and better deals. Then, 
on May 1st at 9 a.m., every lease in New York City would expire simultaneously. Wow. What followed would be the kind of day (laughs) you'd have only ever seen if your town had been overrun by an invading army. The day would come to be described as a horror of disorder, (laughs) price gouging, and panic. So imagine... God. Up until the middle of the 20th century, Mike, every person in New York City who was moving would move at the same time on the same day. Steve, that's a goddamn nightmare. I know there wasn't even that many people back then, but Jesus Christ, the <laughs> traffic must have been terrible. Like it was originally an, a tradition, like I said, the I, the most people believe the tradition began when Dutch settlers who first settled Manhattan um, would celebrate their sort of discovering of this, quote-unquote, discovering of the city, uh, would celebrate their moving to this to Manhattan, the island, by changing their place of residence. Um, and what began as tradition, uh, born of necessity, when the landlords all got together and were like, we're all going to do this on the same day, so we have the leverage. Uh, the tradition became law by an act of the New York State Legislature in 1820. Now, originally, this wasn't much of an issue, as New York City was smaller and less developed, as you pointed out. There was a landlord union. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a formal union. It was like a like a like an association of a bunch of like fucking bosses who got together and they were like, "Let's all decide to do this at the same time, so we could really, really like control how things how things go." Oh my god! Like you pointed out before, people uh, there weren't that many people. The city was smaller, less developed. And people, once upon a time, could actually own houses in the city. But as the number of people grew and the space ran out, real estate became more expensive and the number of propertyless renters skyrocketed, eventually creating a city where thousands of families would all attempt to move on the exact same day at the exact same time. So your experience times 10,000, let's say. Holy shit. Holy j- Steve. See, are you telling me <laughs> that every person's moving to New York City on the same goddamn day? That's exactly what I'm telling you. And and the landlords are skyrocketing rent, so people are moving. Not only are they moving, they're moving to shittier apartments. Possibly. It, it, With, like, they, walk-ups. They ah. were all walk-ups then, Mike. <laughs> they were, every single one of them was a walk-up. Uh, it, as... John, and I'm going to try to do, uh, I didn't do this Robert Todd Lincoln's voice, but I'm going to try to do a, uh, a Ken Burns documentary style thing with all these various quotes. So, as John Pintard, the co-founder of the New York Historical Society, Pintard, that write, sounds like an insult, man. You, if you make it so, Mike, yeah. Most of us don't put those two two together. As he would write in, a, in his journal. Tuesday, 1st May. Yesterday was very unfavorable for the general moving of our great city. High rents, incommodious dwellings, and necessity combined to crowd our streets with carts overloaded with furniture and hand barrows with sofas, chairs, sideboards, looking glasses, and pictures so as to render the sidewalks almost impassable. The practice of all moving on one day and giving up and hiring houses in February is of an ancient custom, and when the city was small and inhabitants few in number, 
almost everybody owned or continued for years tenants in the same houses. Few instances of removals were seen. But now, New York is literally in an uproar for several days before and after the 1st of May. This practice of move-all to strangers appears absurd, but it is attended with the advantage of affording a greater choice of abodes in the February quarter. Oh my God. And this all occurred, a lot of this occurred before the invention of motor vehicles. The streets would be gridlocked instead with horses and closed and open air carts that contain the furniture of entire households oh up my and down God. cobbled streets. And it, oh, my God. People would get into fist fights, <laughs> gun fights. <laughs> like, per, they would actively sabotage other people like, like fucking Ben-Hur races to try to, like, get their cart ahead of the other one. Oh, my God. And what happens when someone has a blowout wagon wheel and then, all, and, and then there's, like, the horse... Maybe like a dead horse in the middle of the street. Like, geez, like, what? Oh, my. There's shit everywhere. Uh, there's literal just shit, shit everywhere. Literal, literal shit and, and metaphorical shit. Oh, my God. And oh, my God. Despite, despite the fact that city ordinances had restricted the amount that cartmen and wagon owners could charge, there was no active body of enforcement. So people would be paying upwards of a week's worth of pay just to move for one day and if the mover refused to pay the charge the cartman would just take all their belongings to the police station and charge the owner extra for the additional transportation of their of their stuff wait so instead of getting <laughs> instead of getting your vehicle towed they just get they tow your all house. their items their whole house yeah. towed uh, exactly. Yeah, you want to go go pick it up at the station. Go talk to the cops. You you fucking fucking uh, 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 lease lender. Like we made a deal, a deal that I controlled because I'm an asshole and I charge you an exorbitant amount for it. In an 1865 article, the New York Times would describe the cartmen on this day thusly. On the first of May, too, the car man becomes a different creature. Not particularly civil at any time, on moving day he must be approached with caution. He has become lord of the ascendant. Ordinary offers do not tempt him. He has been known to laugh or to scorn a man who offered him five dollars to convey a load half a dozen blocks. He declines making any previous engagements. He seeks no customers, but rather conveys the idea that he would prefer to be let alone. At the same time, he keeps a sharp eye to business and only accepts an offer when he knows he can't beat a cent more out of his customer. And then, when he is engaged, he goes about his work with supremest indifference. He is above all ordinances. He is a creation of the day. For tomorrow, he will be a mere carman, amenable to law, and standing in fear of the mayor's marshal. And here I thought the car man we just covered was the biggest piece of shit. Exactly. But there's a whole shitload of car men's out there that were price gouging these poor people trying to move. For one day out of the year, the like in the modern parlance, for one day out of the year, the Oz moving truck would be above the law. <laughs> the driver could shoot a man on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. <laughs> 
And people will throw money. To the, to Be like, yeah, all right. That's one less person. I can rent it now. Yeah. Uh, about the only part of the city, Mike, that didn't hate moving day were children because they were often taken out of school to help prepare for the move. And schools themselves were closed on May 1st because who the fuck's going to get to school in the middle of this? And actually a poem, there was a poem written about it, uh, a May Day magical in which child sings to his mother, I want to see the carpets torn in patches from the floor. I want to see the statuettes thrown through the plate glass door. <laughs> it was it was a Willy Wonka day for the children. Willy Wonka day. Wait, now, wait, Steve, are you telling me Wait, May Day? Is this where the term May Day comes from? May Day! I, I need help! I actually, I, I, it's thought, May Day! <laughs> I thought you might say that. Uh, a lot of people would think, because May Day, in and of itself, the history <laughs> of the day, May 1st, May Day, is actually based on an ancient pagan spring solstice sort of festival, like the, the May Pole and the ring around it, and everyone wears the garland of flowers. Uh, uh, it was and then. Everyone, and everyone's like. Smoking grass and... It's a celebration of spring, like the first decent... Because spring starts in March, but everyone knows it sucks until May. Um, so it's the... Uh, and then eventually the Catholic Church took it over. Right, because uh, April so, showers yeah. bring May D flowers, right? That's yeah, sort of- Sure, that's that's how it goes. Um, and a lot of people confuse this notion of uh, May space day and May Day. May Day as a like call sign for distress was actually developed completely separately and it's actually based on a french word uh, or a french phrase medare uh which uh, means help me essentially um but yeah it's just one of those happy coincidences that actually don't we we don't uh you were right to think that mike cuz that's that was my first thought too but it was actually completely unrelated wow look at this uh, two two different little may fun facts out of here yeah uh, which is fine now that we're in fucking July. Uh, really on the ball with this. Um, Great timing with the episode, Steve. Yeah. Now, eventually, Mike, uh, more and more people, especially the affluent uh, people of the city, would uh, leave for the suburbs during the summer because with the amount of people that New York City, this is specifically Manhattan, mind you, uh, would start to fill up with, people would... Uh, during the Industrial Revolution especially, people who had the money would go out to the suburbs or the Hamptons or what have you to oh, try Jersey to get away. Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore go, to yeah. try to get away from the, the noise and the, and the heat and the gross-ass heat of the city. So because of Dude, that... Dude, the city is gross. I might move away. I, oh, my God. It just stinks. It just stinks, Steve. Well, if you had the money, Mike, you could do what these people did, which was um, uh, eventually they would move out of the city for the summer and would move back in in October. So a second moving day would become prominent, and this one would would become October 1st. So like the May 1st May day would lessen, and the October 1st uh, day would uh, become equally as chaotic, if not more so, with all the rich people coming back into the city on the same day. Oh, my God. Um, and the practice would continue. And then well everyone's the- got to buy candy later that month. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's too much to worry about. It's too you, much. Uh, you got all I the can't. rich people coming back in. Then you get all the kids running around four weeks later. And then it's, before you know it, it's Christmas and Thanksgiving. Ah, uh-huh. oh, just, it's too much of a headache. Um, believe it or not, this practice would continue into the early 20th century. Like, this was not, 
this is not like a one and done. This would continue until like after World War II. Um, and uh, actually, if you've ever wondered, Mike, why most modern leases in New York expire either May for at the beginning of May or the beginning of October, this is why. I, I didn't know that. I didn't. I mean, I, it's a little bit different now. Now that there's they're a little bit more spread out, depending on the type specific building. But I've got a I've got a June lease. Oh wait, I think my lease is up. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I think I'm on month to month now. That's good, I guess. Uh, well, hey, Steve, you know, you got a couch, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. It's very just, comfortable. I'm we teasing. actually just got a new rug. It's a very comfortable rug. We've taken naps on it. Oh, you know, you know, you got a good rug if you can fall asleep on it, man. It's got just enough fluff on it. huh? So if in the middle of this episode, there comes a knock on your door, uh, you just just know that there is a comfortable carpet waiting here for you to sleep on our floor. <laughs> Oh, it wouldn't be for the first. a limited time. <laughs> so, in the but in the early 20th century, we're talking about a, a New York City population that is now in the millions. So now, instead of thousands of people moving at once, we're talking millions of people. And instead of using carts and horse-drawn carriages, they're using modern-day cars and moving trucks. Oh, and Ubers. You know, there's some well, folks. Well, no, it wouldn't be Uber. Oh, this would, yeah. again. Oh, oh, I've moved some stuff in an Uber, Steve. Yeah, Let me but tell did you. Uber exist in 1935? No, it didn't, Mike. Uh, good. What were they called back then? They weren't called because they didn't <laughs> exist. It's a modern-day contrivance. Didn't they have the good old, the, the good old um, um, livery drivers back then? Yes. All right. You're, you're right, Mike. They did have... They did have Livery drivers, they had taxi cabs, they had all of that. They just didn't have what we would consider to be, you know, the uh, the app-based, uh, for for some reason, I don't know why, they didn't get their heads out of their asses and develop silicone <laughs> chips, and they didn't even have transistors yet. Oh, uh, what, a, what a bunch of fucking schmucks, didn't they have any yeah, tech it's almost as if it's almost as if they were preoccupied with some sort of multiple world wars and depressions happening one after another. Speaking hey. of world, yes. yeah, right. go ahead, Steve. No, I was gonna say, speaking of world wars, uh, that's part of the reason why the tradition eventually diminished and disappeared. During, for instance, uh, the economic depression of 1873, more housing was constructed afterwards because of, uh, like, after the depression and things started to pick up again, they built more housing, and because of that, that lowered the rents and made moving every year not necessary necessarily as big of it it's not a thing you had to do and eventually following world war ii following the outbreak of world war ii there would also cause a shortage of like able-bodied men to serve as movers so then everyone saw fighting world war ii you couldn't the movers moving companies couldn't staff very well so you couldn't have people moving as often all these all these women can't lift 100 pounds well that's your that's your take on this particular type of hit you know it is you did say it that's look. We have to with history. I guess we have to look at all views, Mike. Even the ones that are. There's, there's a lot wrong. of strong women out there. There is, man. Rosie they, the Riveter <laughs> would disagree with you. But following World War II, uh, there was a uh, a housing shortage in New York City, uh, and also the introduction of something that we now know as rent control which combined with the expansion of the subway, which then expanded the ability of people to live outside of New York City in one of the other boroughs, 
removed any further need for repeated apartment hopping in New York City. And thus, following World War II, the practice of May Day ended, and now we just get to individually have our own moments of hell, as opposed to all experiencing it together. It's, I, I don't know, I don't know what is better, Steve. Like, having moving day be hell just for you, and you're just like, this sucks. Fuck. Or being able to, because, uh, oh, what, oh, hold on. Uh, what's that word? Disfation shoot? Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. Disfration shoot? I mean, <laughs> Schadenfreude. If I want some Schadenfreude, I'm going to need that. That wasn't even dyslexic. Like that, <laughs> I don't think there's a medical term for what you just did with I'm that I'm just word. glad you knew exactly what I was talking about, Steve. It's like you're right that in my noggin. It scares me. It scares me sometimes. <laughs> but the Schadenfreude, uh, at least everyone had that on May Day. They look around and be like, oh, look at that guy's wagon. It's all fucked up. It makes my moving feel a little better. Yeah, my wagon still has wheels. <laughs> and my horse isn't dead. And then the guy comes over and shoots the guy's horse. No, god damn it. <laughs> you know, misery loves company. I think that was one of the beautiful things about May Day. I think that's New York City's slogan, isn't it? <laughs> misery loves company. Come to New York. <laughs> that's... <laughs> Steve, I love that. <laughs> Forget I love New York, man. Forget New York tough. <laughs> Misery loves company. Come on. That gentleman York. that gentleman actually just passed away today. Did you know that, Mike? The, who the gentleman who created the Isle of New York campaign, he passed away today. No, he didn't. Yeah. Oh my gosh. More history for you. More I'm learning so much here, Steve. And I hope everyone listening's learning something too. Um but yes, that was uh that was up until very recently. Everyone's moving experience in New York City, Mike. So we should count ourselves lucky. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'd say so. I don't know what I'd do if someone came up and shot my horse. Fucking <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> shoot my horse, I'll shoot your horse. Ah, it's already dead. Damn. Uh, I'll shoot this guy's horse. And then there's, and then there was the horse massacre, the New York horse massacre of 1835. People ate Jello for months. <laughs> was Jello around back then? I don't know. I, you know, maybe. We'll cover that the next episode, okay, Mike. Okay. The history of Jell-O. Um, so for our third and final vignette, I want to, Mike, this is going to hit very close to, you, to your heart. You, you enjoy running marathons, do you not? Uh, well, you know, you know, uh, I've been training running. for them. I've, I've been training for them. I've run a bunch of half marathons. That's uh, actually ran two this week, Steve. And, um, but I haven't ran a full. The furthest I've ran is 20 miles, but I would like to do the, the old 26.2 uh, soon. So, you, so you've run a 20-mile marathon. Let me ask you something. Were you well hydrated? Uh, I had to stop and get a bottle. Okay. Where, but you completed the 20 miles. I, did, I, I finished 20 miles, yeah. Okay. Well, then you are, going to, you are going to be very dismissive of the gentleman we're going to discuss on our final vignette, which I'm going to call Running on Empty. <sighs> Uh, send that one for me, Steve. Running on empty, <laughs> running wild. It's a Jackson Brown song. Oh, if you've if you've if you've seen it's it's played very uh, prominently during the uh, uh, running sequence during the Forrest Gump film. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one, Steve. <laughs> but Mike, it's it's 2020, and unfortunately, uh, as we've learned due to circumstances. Uh, Oh, we're not going to have our 2020 Olympics this year. It's going to be moved 2021. Ah, which, which is going to really... People are not going to be thinking of how to predict 
you know, and they're like, oh, four years, and then you, you do it up by, like, things of four. Now it's going to be all screwy. It's either going to be, I don't know if they're going to go so far as to reset it, like, every, still every four years, so now it's, like, on the one instead of the zero, or if they're just going to be like, nope, now you got to train one year with one year less for the next one. And, and do it three years after? No, no, just, like, three years after, like, if we do the one in 2021, but we continue the schedule as is, so that the next one only happens three years later. And then so it's like still 2024, it'll be 2024, yeah. you're saying. Holy bejeez, I wonder what they'll do. I wonder if they'll well, do that. I can tell you what um, I can tell you. Uh, I can't tell you what's going to happen in Olympics in the future, but I can tell you what happened at the 1904 Olympic Games, Mike. Uh, in 1904, um, the third Olympic Games would be held in the city of St. Louis. the uh, The modern Olympic Games, as we know them, began in I want to say 1896, and uh, in Athens, Greece, as a sort of a like a resurgence. The, the original Olympic Games were an ancient Grecian um, uh, event and uh, had uh, the spirit of it was sort of like reinvented for uh, the turn of the 20th century, this brand new century. Uh, and they were going to like hold these games of athletic prominence where like the best uh, athletes from around the world would come together in a show of global solidarity and would compete with one another. Uh, and it was a grand, great, grand experiment that we still live today, long before it bankrupted every city it it hosted. <laughs> do they ever make money at these things, or do they just... They used to, yeah. They used to, um, but eventually it became it became a... I think it was after the 30s. I think the last one that made a real profit was the uh, summer games that took place in L.A. Um, either uh, prior to World War there was the there was the Berlin Summer Games and then there was the uh, L.A. Summer Games that took place after World War II. I think that was the last time it made a profit, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that L.A. already had a lot of like the setup, just as a matter of the city had all the stuff already, and they just didn't have to spend a lot of extra money on new stadiums that didn't get used afterwards. And so, they're doing it all wrong, Steve. The trick is you got to convince the Olympic Federation to to host it in your city, right? The Olympic Committee. Yeah. And then you just like set up <laughs> miles worth of like trailer park, right? So it's real cheap. You got a bunch of mobile homes and you just start shoving people in them. And then uh, you have like a high school like track and field. You know what I mean? Or maybe two of them. But I think you could save on all the expenses from building these giant freaking arenas. Yeah. I mean, that's uh that's what they did in 1904. They didn't have St. Louis built. I think they had they had a stadium already, but granted at 1904 St. Louis was in the middle of the country and was still not very developed. Like it was still very hard to get to St. Louis in even in 1904. Um it was the first Olympic Games to be held outside of Europe. So the first two were held in Europe. This is the first one to be held in the US. Uh, and it was also the first to introduce the three-medal system. So this was the first Olympic Games to introduce the gold, silver, and bronze system. Wait, so before this one, are you telling me that they just were like, first place and y'all, if you ain't first, you're last? I mean, they still held places. They just didn't award, they just didn't have a, a separate award system for it. Uh, and I can just hear, I can just hear the old fogies back in 1904. Oh, what, everybody gets the medal? Uh, oh, yeah, they get a nice silver silver medal. No, Mike, <laughs> that's a modern-day contrivance. 
But despite these firsts, the proceedings would be marred by international tensions caused by the Russo, the Russo, sorry, the Russo-Japanese War, which was going on at the time, which combined with the distance and difficulty required to get to St. Louis, would actually prevent most non-U.S. or Canadian athletes for, from participating. So I think there were only um, of the uh, a majority of the athletes that participated in the 1904 Olympics were from North America. Uh, there's maybe only 20 or 30 athletes that came from abroad. And this would, so this, this resulted in very few of the world's top athletes from participating. And nowhere was this more evident than by the events surrounding the men's marathon event. Oh, boy. So the first big mistake in the 1904 men's marathon event wouldn't be the fault of the athletes, but the planners of the event, who, one, started the marathon in the afternoon as opposed to in the morning. Oh, it gets real hot in the afternoon, Steve. Yeah. I made that mistake out there myself. Started in the afternoon. The temperature for the day that it uh, that it, the event was held reached 92 degrees oh. with a humidity in the 90s. No. Which, uh, when you combine the two, the heat index, which is sort of like the, the South's answer to wind chill, would make it roughly 135 degrees. Holy bejesus. And while the race began and ended in the stadium, it took place almost entirely on dusty, unpaved country roads. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> and to add to the discomfort, the race officials would ride ahead in vehicles. They were right ahead of the runners in vehicles, which kicked up clouds of dust and exhaust. And in addition to all of that, the marathon runners had to constantly dodge crosstown traffic, delivery wagons, railroad trains, trolley cars, and just people walking their fucking dogs. <laughs> so when you say, oh, they should just, they don't need all this infrastructure. They should just build like some trailer parks. This is what fucking happens when you don't build the infra infrastructure, Mike. This is what you force the athletes to do. Hey, you know what, Steve? If you're the best in the world, you better show that's up. What I'm, that's what I'm saying. They weren't the best in the world. Those fuckers didn't show up. These were like... These were the D string, <laughs> and every every time, and it was a, again, it was the first, it was the first uh, Olympic event, uh, first Olympics to take place in the U.S. And every time an American won the event, it was like there was like this swell of patriotic pride, and everyone else was sort of like, yeah, but you won because there's like two Italian guys here, and that's it. There's like 30 Americans and two Italians. The statistics are not on the side of the non-Americans. You know what? You gotta give it to you gotta give it to our good old U.S. of A. here, Steve. It don't it don't matter what kind of little accomplishment it is, but an American wins. Boy, patriotism just swells oh, up to maximum, baby. You have no idea what you're talking about, Mike. So James Sullivan, one of the organizers, purposefully placed the marathon's sole water source. At the 11 mile mark along a 24 mile course, and it was a public well. So there wasn't like water stations. It was, oh, there was one it's, source and of it's water. Well water, which always had a nasty taste. My aunt exactly. Sandy had well water, and I'm like, Aunt Sandy, I hate this water. It tastes, it tastes different. It tastes bad. It tastes like the medals they're awarding me. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Uh, that's funny. <laughs> um, now, thank you. I try. I get at least one every episode. Um, so James Sullivan did this intentionally because he was conducting research into purposeful dehydration, which was a scientific fad at the time. They they thought that it would actually 
make you run better if you weren't drinking water. Up until then, a lot of people actually, a lot of uh, the science was like, oh, well, no, you know what they do need is is booze. So, like, they weren't, like, uh, in the previous Olympics, the runners were not, like, getting cups of water. They were drinking flutes of champagne because they thought the booze would, like, fuel them to run better. This is incredible. I knew, I knew, Steve. I, oh, let me tell you something. Let me tell, oh, get this. Let, let me, I'm going to be telling you something, Steve. So I have discovered, after a night of moderate... Now, I get it. These people were drinking on the course, which is absolute insanity. But after nights of moderate drinking, I have had my best runs. I've had PRs. But it was always after. It was always after, Mike. (laughs) Because I... And you know what? Beer is my carb. And it turns out, apparently, beer is the carb of the... of not, Not even the carb. Just the beverage choice. They, they threw H2O out and just went right with the alcohol. Yeah. Holy bejesus. So because of this so, and the aforementioned problem. Which causes more dehydration, though. That's exactly. Oh the marathon God. ended The marathon ended with only 14 out of 32 entrants actually finishing. And the second winner, that's right, the second winner, I'll get to that later, crossing the second winner crossed the finish line 30 minutes slower than the next slowest winning time in all of Olympic history. A full half an hour slower than the next slowest. <laughs> That's said, a really long time. Yeah. And I said, so when I said that you ran a 20 mile, like this is only a 24 mile marathon and you ran a 20 mile, granted you weren't like throwing back flutes of champagne and like running behind cars the whole time, but still it's an accomplishment. You could have easily won the 1904 men's marathon, Mike. Oh my God. Um, so I'll get to that. Uh, but who were the participants in this grand debacle, and how did they fare? Well, first, we have Len Tao and Jan uh, Mashiani, who made history by being the first two black Africans to compete in the Olympics. They wow. finished ninth and 12th, respectively, and this was unexpected, as many had placed bets on Len Tao either winning or placing the marathon. And he very well might have, Mike, had he not been chased a mile off course by dogs. Oh, Ooh. I'm sure there's nothing more to that story as to why the dogs, those are the American dogs, decided to chase the two African uh, marathon runners a mile off course. You know, I guess they, I, I, this isn't even a joke. It's a real, I, the racism within dogs has been a real problem in this country. It's not, it's, it's not learned, Mike. It's taught. Oh, that's sick. Oh, Jesus. Um, Can you imagine running an extra mile because you got goddamn dogs chasing you? I don't have to, Mike, and neither do you. That's the problem. (laughs) Uh, So then we have William Garcia, a member of the U.S. team, who was found lying half dead in the road along the course with a near-fatal internal hemorrhaging caused by breathing in the dust and exhaust clouds of the officials' cars. He didn't even win. He didn't place. He didn't do anything. He passed out on the side of the road. His esophagus and lungs had been lacerated by the dust particulates. Uh, and he, he could have died had he not been found by some passerbys. Where was his handkerchief? I don't know, Mike. Some people just have it better than others, I guess, in terms of their, their support team. Oh, my God. Yo. Then, Mike. Where was his pace? Oh, 
his pacer. Oh, we'll get to that. Don't worry. We'll get to the <laughs> some some people might have been better off not having pacers or support teams. This, we'll get to that. Oh my god, but these then, poor athletes. Then we have Cuban mailman and long distance runner Andarin Carvajal. Despite being listed Carnival? to did he did, did his brother own a cruise ship? Is that no? Carvajal. He was actually very famous. He was the first Cuban to participate in the Olympics, and after the '60s, the last Cuban to participate for a while. He uh, was a mailman, and in Cuba, he was famous for walking the entire length of the island back and forth to to, to deliver the mail. Um, despite being listed to a compete, he arrived at the last minute. And this was due to the fact that prior to the games, he had made a stop in New Orleans to try his hand at gambling, which it turns out he was extremely bad at because he lost all of his money and had to walk and hitchhike from New Orleans to St. Louis with nothing but the clothes on his back. Oh, my God. He basically arrived with just enough time to cut his pants into shorts before joining the marathon. What was this guy's name? Uh, Andarin Carvajal. So you're telling Andarin me Carvajal. a mailman. <laughs> a ma- um, oh my god! And that's not the end of the story. He had to he had to walk and hitchhike from New Orleans to St. Louis. He hadn't eaten in the whole time. He hadn't eaten for forty hours the entire time. So during the marathon, he would take time out of the race to talk with spectators and ask them if they had any food on them. <laughs> so he would chat with them. At one point, he asked some folks for, uh, so there were some folks that had some peaches. He asked them if he could have some, and they said no. And so he basically did the whole look over there and grabbed them and ran and ran away. He snatched the peaches from the uh, spectators uh, and had them along, had had, uh, had some peaches along the road. And, then, and now he's getting chased down by an angry dad who's like, oh, that's my kid's pretzel. Like, yeah, but he's yeah he's, he's in the marathon. He can't be uh, like. Here's a reason he's he's in this marathon. He uh, he has the endurance to uh, outrun any angry dad who he sells peaches from. <laughs> that that uh, he's still pretty hungry at this point, and along the way he runs into an apple orchard. So he stops and picks some apples for a snack. These would turn out to be rotten apples, but he was so hungry that he ate them anyway. And so oh, uh, no, a few gonna, miles down the road, the sheds, no doubt exactly. About it. <laughs> a few yeah. miles down the road, it would cause him intense intestinal cramping that would require him to lie down and take a nap on the course. He took a nap. He took a fucking nap <laughs> on the course. <laughs> this guy's my favorite athlete of and all Mike, time. <laughs> Mike, Mike, can I tell you something? What? He finished fourth. He got fourth place. He got fourth fucking place. <laughs> You know, and they tell you the tourists in the hair, the hair shouldn't have taken the nap. I tell you, it looks like this guy's nap worked out pretty well for him. Yeah. And, but, and dude, oh my God. <laughs> I, I want to, I know, I know you're blown away, Mike. I want to get to this because this is, we're down to the final two. Finally, we have the winners. And I would say uh, quotation marks, the winners. The first winner was American distance runner, Fred Lortz. After crossing the finish line, and getting his picture taken with Teddy Roosevelt's eldest daughter, Alice. He was about to be awarded the gold medal. She, Alice Roosevelt, about to put the gold medal over his head when it was revealed that Lortz had actually dropped out of the race at the nine-mile mark. <gasps> he hitched a ride back to the stadium, waving at spectators, passerbys, and even other runners. En route to the stadium, the car broke down near the 19-mile mark. 
Oh, well, well rested and sensing opportunity, Lord simply re-entered the race and easily jogged his way to the finish. Lortz insisted when a person who had fucking been waved at by him, <laughs> like he fucking waved at people like an idiot, and those people showed up and were like, no, that fucker was like in a car the whole fucking time. Eh, eat, our, eat my dust, bitches. Is that where, exactly. that, is, is that where the saying came from? Was from this yeah, guy riding Garcia, in the car? Garcia did dust. eat his dust. <laughs> Garcia did eat his dust and almost died because of it. Um. So when confronted by these people, Lortz insisted he was playing a joke. It was a prank. He wasn't actually going to take the gold. He was just going to like go right up until that and be like, just kidding. I didn't actually win, you guys. Nevertheless, he was disqualified and banished from the sport where he proceeded to live a life of regret. Just kidding. He won the Boston Marathon the next year. Oh, Lortz, you dog. <laughs> trickster. Ah, the the marathon trickster, Fred Lortz. Oh, you, you, he's a kidder, this guy. I, I am getting all sorts of new favorite athletes out of this tale of, of, of marathon woes and trickery. This I'm is... glad, I'm glad, Mike, because here's your new favorite athlete. The actual winner of the event was American track and field athlete Thomas Hicks. Despite ah, being. I always, I always like someone named Hicks. <laughs> Well, I mean, you're from Plattsburgh. It reminds me of home, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Despite being the actual legal winner, to become so required techniques that years later would be frowned upon at the least. At mile 14, he led the pack by a mile and a half, but the punishing heat and conditions proved too much for him to continue. And despite repeated attempts by him to stop and lie down on the track before his body gave out, he was thwarted and restrained by his own trainers. He kept, every time, he was like, okay, you guys, I gotta lie down. I can't keep going. And he's like, no, you motherfucker, we got money riding on this. And they would, like, grab him by the arms and, like, wrestle him not to the ground, but off of the ground. Uh, get up! Get up, you lazy sack of shit! We, we gotta race the win! <laughs> for, the me- for the next 10 miles, his support team would force him to down a concoction of brandy mixed with egg whites and strychnine. Wait, what's strychnine? Strychnine, while a common rat poison, also produces a stimulating effect in the nervous system if taken in small doses. It basically tricks the body into thinking it's about to die, so it like kicks off its adrenal glands. This would be the first recorded instance of doping, of drug use, in the Olympic Games, in the modern Olympic Games. Oh now, be- my God! Now, of course... This not being administered by this being administered by not doctors in the middle of a fucking marathon probably meant those doses weren't exactly being measured very well. And so All right, here's a shot of brandy mixed with a shot of rat poison. All right, get off and your egg ass whites. and get moving. And egg whites. Get going. Oh, and it's the egg whites. Yeah, don't forget, don't forget the protein. <laughs> and so protein drunk, hallucinating, and barely able to walk. Thomas Hicks made his way to the finish. He was hallucinating because he was being slowly poisoned to death. He was like, he was hallucinating, like in that way that you see, like a distance very far away, like that whole, like, like sort of thing. Where, oh like, you, my God. You it see, must have seemed like 100 miles to him. It's like 20 miles, but it was only like a mile. Yeah. And so, drunk, hallucinating, barely able to walk, Thomas Hicks made his way to the finish. His support team carried him over the line holding him in the air while he shuffled his feet as if he were still running, weekend at Bernie style. 
Holy shit. He was immediately attended by numerous doctors, which is the only thing that stopped him from dying. Tell me Alice Roosevelt gave him a smooch on the cheek. (laughs) I I don't think she did, because he would have been pretty gross by then. (laughs) He's just sweating poison. Yeah, you're right. Um, (laughs) Thomas Hicks would lose eight pounds over the course of the marathon. Wow. In 20 miles, he lost eight pounds. Which goes to show you that, you know, diet books don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Because what you should really do is try to kill yourself with poison. (laughs) Steve! Steve, you gotta get the PSA now that you cannot recommend brandy, rat poison, and egg whites to our listeners while going out and running 24 miles. I will will definitely uh, ask for that. Um, that to uh, that to be put on in the show notes, but that that Mike is the end of our first inaugural episode of Are You Telling Me? Well, I feel like I learned a lot today. I learned Robbie Todd, well, could never fill his dad's shoes. Was a bit of a was a bit of a with a little whiny a whiny uh, re- Republican, and uh, saw, he was the Ted Cruz of his day. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Oh, a Ted Cruzy. Yeah, and uh, and he stopped going to presidential events because, well, people kept dying. I mm-hmm. learned about... Specifically the presidents who invited him. I learned May Day, uh, you, know, uh, you know, people would say war is hell, but apparently moving day was, was, was way worse than that. And, um, and that there was a lot of... The, the 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 marathon runners of 1904 what 1904 1904 the uh, olympic games the third olympiad the third olympiads are my favorite athletes of all time our first american <laughs> olympics and we sure we sure showed them didn't we we sure we, made a we a did real, it we did a real it showing. Uh, the the america way we, yeah and i think and i'm pretty sure that's where eat my dust came from it's got to be I mean, who's to say this is just a history podcast, Mike? I don't know where things originated from or who said what first. I like I liked all those guys. I liked the bad guys. I liked the good guys. And I like the winners who are often the bad guys. (laughs) Um, But uh, if you uh, if you are faithful listeners liked uh, this little foray into outside our normal sort of song topsy scape, uh, let us know. Again, not not really planning on making it a, a regular thing, but if we need to do like an emergency Steve and Mike episode again, uh, we'd like to know if you enjoyed the uh, the format. Steve, I feel like you, you you taught us so much today. Gotta really give it to you and your encyclopedic knowledge of just random ass crazy shit that happened. Yeah, Mike, it was totally encyclopedic. I didn't research anything at all or write anything down. I just knew all of it. What can I say? I'm just, I'm, I'm brilliant. Um, but you can find us um, on, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, me specifically at Your Man Trollo, and on my website, stephentrollinger.com. I don't know, we should speak from Nick, I assume. Uh, you can find Nick. Where does Nick say you can find him? Mike, don't you have that part memorized? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I always just assume he says something that I'm about to say, and I say, yeah, like Nick said. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, but like yeah, he's at N Brigadier. Well, hold on, hold on. He's on don't the get Inst- people this. On, he's on the he's on the Instagrams and the Twitters, and he's at the uh, oh 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 my my landlord's calling me. Oh uh oh, it's moving day. 
Oh, oh, geez. I'm not even kidding. Hold on a second. Uh, Nick can be found at, oh, and Brigadier on Instagram. At, at in, on Instagram, yes. Yeah, and, and look at our stuff on Dapper Devil Productions and Chad is not the killer. And, and this is what Nick sounds like. This is what we hear when we talk to Nick. And I got this peeper show that's with uh, J.W. Crump. Watch that, too. Yeah, Nick plays a cup with with googly eyes. Oh, man. Uh, we are definitely not doing a good job of this. <laughs> it's called Peepers. All right, Peepers with our, our good friend from the uh, from the uh, Chad is not the killer. Oh, Nick. I miss him. Uh, He'll be back. <laughs> and like Nick's would also say, oh, yeah, so, yeah, check that out. Send us your song suggestions. You can find me, Mr. Mike Russell, at... MrMikeRussell.com. That's MrMR.D-O-T. Um, and, uh, yeah, why don't you also tell us what your favorite running experience has been? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did yeah, you, yeah, that's the ticket. Did, did, did you ever get the nipple chafe where you're bleeding from the nips? Did you ever have to stop at a restroom and it ruined your pace? Uh, or do you not run? And... You like walking? I don't know. Let us know. Or or your or your terrible <laughs> your terrible moving experiences, I guess. Oh yeah, moving. Yeah, why don't you just tell us something terrible? Or, or how mad you are at how cool your dad is. Whatever, whichever those three strikes your. Do you fancy. have daddy issues, moving issues, or running issues? Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we will hopefully be back next week with uh, the three of us on our regularly scheduled Song Topsy episode. Uh, and until then, uh, I guess I'm. Professor Stephen Trollinger. And I'm student Mike Russell. (laughs) And we'll see you guys next time. Take care.